This show is brought to you by Whatever You Say Productions, starting conversations since 2018. It's kind of funny because I feel like when you do devote all your time to one thing, you really make just as much progress as if you did other things at once. I don't know, maybe that's just me. Yeah. But welcome and welcome back to episode 11 of Microscope. 11. As always, I'm your host, Mike. And I'm your host, Kevin. Yay, Kevin's back for his third official episode. Third official episode. Third official yeah. episode. So la- last week's episode, or I guess two weeks ago, um, that episode ended with sort of like a bombshell, where we told everybody, eat the GMOs, you know, because we're being paid by Monsanto yeah, to tell everybody shills, that. They are paying us off to not just. Dis- Divulge their secrets. Exactly. That's why I just bought a Mini Cooper with all my yeah. Monsanto money. <laughs> <laughs> but so we wanted to we wanted to sort of bring that topic back in. You know, GMOs is one way we can combat um, food shortages during climate change. But another way is actually harnessing the microbiomes of plants and. This is something that I think I am very near and dear to, especially in terms of like the micro microbiome of an organism. And I think Kevin is just as obsessed. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, so this, uh, this week we did something a little different. The past few weeks uh, we have looked at what are known in the academic sphere as original research articles. So in an original research article that is a scientist has done an experiment all that involving formulating a hypothesis, figuring out what are the methods they're going to follow in order to test that hypothesis, and reporting their results through figures and um, tables. This week... That was a really nice way to express what an original paper is. It's just going through the (laughs) scientific method. We all remember back in fourth grade, your science teacher had it on their... um, on their uh, wall there, a big explanation of the points of the scientific method. And in an original research article, that's really, that's all that's going on. They're just deliberately and very precisely explaining what they did to satisfy each um, each step of the scientific method. Uh, but like I said, this week uh, we're doing something a little different. This is called a review article, which is basically... Um, scientists taking a ton of original research articles and synthesizing really what are the core findings, what are the core outcomes from all of these um, research endeavors, and kind of uh, translating that into something that is useful uh, to the community at large. It's kind of a uh, larger synthesis of what's happening right now and what can we do in the future to um, progress this field Mm -hmm. forward. Like these review papers really help to, one, get new scientists who are new to the field up to date on where it is, and then two, also help steer where the whole field as a whole should be going. Well, they try. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and just to give you a little perspective on this particular uh, review paper, in an original research article, they might cite, meaning they will take information from um, a previous article, and they may cite maybe like, 30, 40 papers, sounds like pretty average. For this review, they cited 90, 90 papers when oh my God. to um, uh, put all this information together, and somehow they made sense of it all. And There's how many authors? Two, one, two, three, four. 
nine, ten authors. Yeah, ten authors is pretty pretty standard for like a research a article, but for a review, I feel like that's a little a little on the high side. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, usually it's like one or two. Yeah, one or two people yeah. putting all that information together. <laughs> Still, quite quite a feat. Not not something to uh, be taken lightly. And so, I think let's just get into what they talked about. So. The title of the paper was Research Priorities for Harnessing Plant Microbiomes in Sustainable Agriculture. And, you know, to sort of put this into a language that, you know, pretty much anybody can understand, it's you know your gut microbiome, right? You eat food, your gut microbiome, all those bacteria and all those very tiny organisms break down that food and provide those nutrients to your body. Well, in a plant microbiome, they do exactly the same thing. But instead of being on the gut, they're generally around the roots of a plant. Mm -hmm. One really prolific example of this that I'm sure you may have heard about is in um, legumes and the root nodules. So legumes, <laughs> I'm probably going to mess this up. Those are like Those, beans yeah. and stuff, right? Yep. <laughs> like soybeans. Yes. Wait, yeah, soybeans. I think. <laughs> you can see we're not plant or agricultural biologists here. Um, but so, yeah, so they have a root structure called root nodules. And for the longest time, um, farmers all around the world would use these as a means of fertilizing the soil for other, um, other crops that they would grow. And it wasn't until the discovery of the microbiome and the discovery of uh, bacteria-plant interactions that it was found that these root nodules actually serve as a little home for this class of bacteria known as nitrogen fixers. Um, so what nitrogen fixers do is, in fact, um, nitrogen is a crucial element for life. It's in all sorts of molecules like DNA and proteins that are absolutely crucial for life. But on the planet Earth, the vast majority of nitrogen is held up in the atmosphere in the form of N2 or molecular um, Nitrogen gas. It makes up close to 70% of the yes, atmosphere? 70, yeah, I think the it's. The overwhelming majority of the atmosphere is actually this gas. However, 70% of what you breathe yes, is nitrogen. Yeah. yeah. However, we can't use this directly to make DNA and proteins in ourselves. This nitrogen gas needs to be what they call fixed into a biologically usable state. And this is only completed by these nitrogen fixing bacteria. So within the root nodules of these legumes and other kinds of plants that have these, um, they have these nitrogen-fixing bacteria, and that is really the link between um, the larger cycles of atmospheric chemistry and biochemistry are linked by these nitrogen-fixing bacteria. They are taking nitrogen from the atmosphere and fixing it into a biologically relevant form and then that goes in, the plant uses that, and then we eat the plants, and now everybody is happy because we have nitrogen, all because of these bacteria. So that's a very specific example. Of root, nodules. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, root nodules. I think that class of bacteria is called the Brady rhizobiums. I think. You know. Oh, <laughs> you do, know I know? do I know these <laughs> <Yeah>. things? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like These Brady rhizobium bacteria are awesome, and they play the largest, well, okay, maybe not the largest role, but a very, very important role in providing nitrogen to all the plants. 
that we eat, which we eat it. So we should thank these bacteria for every cell in our body. Precisely. Yes, <laughs> that is really the vibe we're trying to come at you with here. So, right, so this type of bacteria is just one, you know, clade of bacteria that actually help these plants survive. There are so many others that do so many other different things. Some of them s sort of eat the waste that are found around the roots of the or the plants, you know, making the soil healthier for them. Um, and these are just some examples. So I think we're currently in the stage of like understanding plant microbiomes in that we still need sort of a model organism to do our studies because to understand how these bacteria help the plants, we really need to understand it at sort of a mechanistic level. So like, what are the bacteria actually doing and what are the plants actually benefiting from? And so one of the first things that this paper points out is that we really just need something to study. So like, we've all heard of um, mammalian experiments being done on mouse cells and mouses are, or mice, mice, mouses. <laughs> mice are considered a model organism. Well, we need a model organism in terms of plants and their microbiome. And this is actually really, really difficult because not only do you need a model plant organism, you need multiple model bacterial organisms, and then you need to somehow put that together. All together. All together. And, it's, and you have to have that be representative of actually generally what plant microbiome interactions are like so like in the mouse model it's representative i'm using air quotes here of the they can human see body. Yeah, they can <laughs> see of the human body because mice are mammals we're mammals uh things are close enough um mechanistically we can kind of make inferences based on what we find in a mouse um here given the vast uh uh, diversity of plant life and the even greater diversity of bacterial life that becomes very tricky when we're trying to hone all of these parameters exactly and I think understanding so when you pick up a piece of soil and you look at it there are close to 10,000 different bacteria that could live in there and I think we're still at this step in trying to understand which of those 10,000 actually play a role in the plant to make those matters more complicated, maybe you need a bacteria that helps the plant. You need another bacteria to help the growth bacteria. of that bacteria. Yeah, totally. This is Happens like a, all the time. <laughs> it's the most chaotic question you could ever lay out. So, it, it's it's something that needs to happen in the field and needs to happen in many different fields. Like it, with our gut microbiome, we need to understand sort of like how the bacteria in our gut affect us. But until we really have a good grasp or a model of experiments that we could run on or like a model that we can do experiments on we're still always going to be at the surface level of our understanding and our ability to manipulate it for our benefit yeah so that's what they really tried to get at um, in this paper or this review paper is really trying to define what we know and what we don't know about agricultural microbiome um, systems. And the first point, um, as far as broad research goals they wanted to put forth to the research community, was to develop model host microbiome systems 
for crop plants and non-crop plants with associated microbial culture collections and reference genomes. So we just kind of unpacked what um, host microbiome systems or what it would mean to have a model host microbiome system. But um, I don't know if we talked about uh, microbial culture collections before in, um, in the not, microscope no. canon here. Um, so really, in the simplest terms, the way I like to think of it, a microbial culture collection is just kind of like a zoo for microbes. You have examples, uh, prime examples of all, a bunch of different types of species of bacteria. And basically, because bacteria are so small and no one really cares if they live or die, we can pretty much treat them how we like. And so from a culture collection, you basically can say, hey, I would like this one. And they'll send you a little vial of it um, frozen. And then you can use that. And you know exactly what's in there. You know exactly um, uh, what you're getting and how to grow it. And so we can basically check out or um, uh, purchase pure cultures of microbes from these culture collections and it's a very convenient way to run experiments and do things like that. It's kind of funny because we actually just take these bacteria, grow them up so we have a lot of them, then put them into a solution of like sugar. Yes. And then shove them in a freezer. Yep. And they come back. They're happy. They're happy. They're, they're like so that. happy. <laughs> yeah, so if we have a um, model um, crop plant that we want to look at and we have some idea of its um, microbiome, we can then go to these culture collections and say, hey, I want this bug, that one, and the other one, and then we can try to recapitulate that in the laboratory. And that oh my God, great word. For <laughs> <laughs> moving forward and kind of probing which ones are super important to the health of the plant, which ones are kind of playing supportive roles. Uh, like Mike just said, where it could be that maybe it's not directly required for the plant, but for another bacteria that's required for the plant, you may need this bacteria to be healthy, and it's so, so convoluted at times. Wow, we should do a factorial at 10,000. Just how many combinations can you find? <laughs> we need to test all of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of math comes in here. Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of what uh, microbial culture collection or the role that plays in, in this whole um, system. And then reference genomes, we probably touched on. So I talked a little bit about the reference genome, uh, or at least a representative population genome, when I told everybody about my amazing new genome Ooh. from the Bathy Archaeota. Yeah, um, this is a big deal. This is a paper can come out of just finding a new genome like this. So yeah, hats yeah. off to Mike, everyone. It's still there. It's just sitting. I haven't touched it. I know. I was so excited. I got to get on it. But. but this is the reality of science. Shit yeah. happens like that. You'll get something that's so exciting, and then a million other things will keep coming up. Like right now, throughout the recording of this episode, Mike <laughs> is teaching an undergrad how to run gel electrophoresis, and it's just, this is what our life is it's like. It's multitasking. We, we are queens of multitasking. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so reference genome, right? We talked a little bit about sort of a genome is all the instructions needed to make that bacteria. So hopefully everybody has heard about the you know the great race for the sequencing of the human microbiome or the human genome. Well, that's oh god, terabytes worth of data, terabytes worth of data. Well, a bacterial genome is much smaller. It's only I think one of the largest one is only like ten megabytes, 
yeah. which is like a seven minute song. Mm-hmm. If you if I was to reference that Very or anything. Good way to put it, yeah. Yeah. So all of the information to make that bacteria to live in the soil, to compete with its other neighbors, and to help that plant are all stored in that seven megabase pair instruction booklet. Yeah, and that leads in nicely to the second goal, um, research goal that kind of laid out in this review. The second one was to define the core microbiomes and metagenomes in model host microbiome systems. So we kind of just talked about that, um, saying if we were able to recreate the microbiome um, in the laboratory, the plant microbiome in the laboratory, um, then how can we determine which uh, bacteria are actually really important, which are less so important, kind of get that core um, system understood. And then the, where the reference genomes really come in is what are the core metagenomes. And I think Mike has talked about what metagenomes are in contrast to um, genomes before. Yeah, so again, referencing the Bathy Archaeota. So essentially what we do is we take this gram of soil, right? I love the gram of soil. Yeah. Love the gram of soil. So we take a gram of soil, and there's 10,000 different bacteria in there, right? And essentially, we extract all of the DNA, all the instructions for those bacteria, and we then sequence it. This is where things get a little dicey, because the way we sequence currently requires that we break these pieces of DNA up into very small chunks. So I think we're up to about 350 base pairs now. I think that we can sequence a 350 base pair long piece of DNA. And where it gets, where we need computers to process all this data is taking these 350 base pair sequences and then linking them back together so that they actually represent genetic information and or pieces of genome actually representative of the community. So to understand these microbial communities, you can take this metagenomic approach that I just explained, or you can culture them in the lab. Um, and that's like how Kevin referenced have this like microbial zoo. So both of these are used in connection to build like a real version of what the soil can be. Because with Metagenomes, you can't get all the information, and with cultured representatives, you can't get all the information. So it's really a synthesizing of what you can grow, like actual species that you can play with, touch, and see, versus like sequences of DNA that are stored in your computer. And linking technology and biology. I feel like I need a robotic eye after saying that. There you go. And that goes perfectly segues into the third research goal they had in this review, which was to try and elucidate the rules of synthetic, functionally programmable microbiome assemblies. I want you to say that one more time. (laughs) Elucidate the rules of synthetic and functionally programmable microbiome assemblies. That's a mouthful. I gotta, I gotta piece that apart just <laughs> yeah, myself. Let's think about what? that. Okay. So first of all, elucidate to make clear, make lucid, which it never does. It's always gonna be muddy to some degree, especially when we're talking about taking something that in the natural habitat exists in such a chaotic and complex um, manner, 
and trying to make it um, clear and understandable in the laboratory, that is really um, the crux of science right now, especially. It's like every wild. day. That's yeah, every seriously. day. Like Yeah. Well, my life is kind of chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> wild like that. I'm trying to elucidate things here. Yeah, so this is kind of what we've been alluding to this whole time. Um, making synthetic communities in the laboratory, like we just said, we could go to the microbe zoo, get the ones we need, and try to recreate what we found in nature in the laboratory. And now here's the really exciting part where we could start to see how could understanding this really translate into truly um, more sustainable agricultural practices um, than we have right now. Functionally programmable microbiome assemblies. So the function of the microbiome, like for example, like we just talked about with the root nodules, the function of having, um, what were those guys? Brady rhizobium. Brady rhizobium in the root nodules is to provide nitrogen to the plant so it can grow. So that would be the function of that. Now, functionally programmable, could we maybe up the efficiency? of those guys to give it more nitrogen, make it more efficient, make the entire uh, microbial assemblage more efficient. So that functional programmability is really the, the end goal here is, can we now manipulate the what microbes are present in the microbiome, what ratios are they present in, can we really tune that to make it even more efficient for the plants and then thus allowing for more sustainable agricultural practices. Mind you, that would be even before bringing genetically modified organisms into the entire equation. This is just using what's already naturally present and can we manipulate those ratios to make things work even better than they could. So that'd be kind of a big goal of understanding these plant microbe microbiome interactions. Exactly, and I like how you sort of contrast it to genetically modified. Because one way we're adjusting what the plant can do, but in the other way we're looking at sort of like the plant and the soil and all the bacteria that live in the soil as sort of like a supra-symbiotic organism. Absolutely. And that's sort of like what our understanding of planet Earth is like. You know, we live on this planet with all these organisms, some produce oxygen, some fix nitrogen for all of us to eat, right? Like we all live as a part of this super organism and some people not going to point fingers are like fucking it up. <laughs> yeah. So those people fucking it up also need to understand how they can improve the environment and better it. And one way is to sort of look at the plant and the soil as sort of this one whole thing as opposed to different parts. And I want to touch quickly on what you said about programmable, because I think that is very much where all microbiome research is at currently. So with the agricultural research, we want to be able to program or manipulate the soil microbiome to improve crop production. In We want to be able to program or manipulate the gut microbiome, because we're starting to find a lot of links between the bacteria that live in your gut and their different ratios of them in relation to like how you feel, IBS, autism. I think there's a group here that actually oh, yeah. study the microbiome changes based on like autistic behaviors. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then also me and myself, I found that different 
bacteria in different soils can produce more or less methane. So being able to understand what they're doing and really changing what they're doing without much interference. I think, I'm, no, I'm trying to think of like a good reference to that. Or like a... Um, uh, fecal transplant. Fecal, fecal transplant, yeah, exactly, exactly. So what happens in fecal transplant is this comes from um, another field of microbiomics, if you will, um, that has a better, better uh, model system looking at the, at the um, human gut microbiome. So there's been lots of studies at what bacteria are present in a healthy human gut and in um, some cases of people with um, uh, chronic ga gastrointestinal issues that microbiome has been thrown off. And so one of the very interesting treatments they've come up with is we can take fecal matter, which contains the gut microbiome from a healthy individual, and transplant that into the gut or kind of seed the gut of an unhealthy individual with that, trying to bring their microbiome closer to um, the healthy um, state, which is still not fully understood what exactly that is, but this is kind of another step um, towards understanding that. So in this case, could we kind of use that same logic um, to bring that to um, a st sustainable agriculture um, kind of practice. Exactly. And that's like a nice segue into our next topic, which is the fecal transplant is a very crude method. Mm -hmm. Like we're literally forcing someone else to eat poo from somebody else, but it works. And so I think where they are right now in the plant microbiomes is really understanding functionally what's going on. And I think we've touched on that multiple times. It's we need to understand not only who is around these roots or who are, because there's also bacteria that live on like the leaves and yeah. in the flowers that everywhere. help the plant. Bacteria are everywhere. If we everywhere. Can't <laughs> drive something home anymore. Yeah. And so, like, it's not only who's there, but it's specifically what they're doing. And that's the funny thing with bacteria is you can't just say, oh, this class of organisms are the only organisms that do this. So this is what they're doing. Like the Brady rhizobium are nitrogen fixers. They're just not the only nitrogen fixers. Mm -hmm. There's also a class of cyanobacteria that oh, fix yeah. nitrogen. Um, if you see green pond scum, those are cyanobacteria. Yep. They're fixing nitrogen Oxygen, for them. Nitrogen, yep. doing it all. They're very independent. <laughs> 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 oh, we talked about cyanos two episodes ago. We ought to talk about them every episode. We should. All right, right. Then I want to talk about methanogens. <laughs> yeah, so then bringing all that home in the fifth research goal they outlined in this review kind of takes everything we can throw at this problem of how can we um, use understanding of the plant microbiome and their interactions um, to really bring forth even more sustainable agricultural practices is a... It kind of brings into um, into focus a analytical um, process that's used a lot in science, and it's uh, I'm probably gonna mess up explaining this, but like kind of a multi-dimensional um, scalar analysis. Is that <laughs> yeah. right? I don't know. What does M <laughs> NMDS? Stand oh, for? oh, multi-dimensional. I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know, but. 
I don't even know what it is. I can't. We can't. Hold this on. is what they're trying to get at in the fifth, <laughs> fifth point here is to characterize and refine plant genotype by environment by microbiome by management interactions. So you can think of each one of those buys in that sentence as a axis on a graph. So if you think of genotype by environment, you can just look at a graph that has genotype on the x-axis and environment on the y-axis and see how does the different genes in a plant and it, it interact with its environment. We can draw a line through these data points. Now, or not. Or not. Could or be scattered it, it all could over be the place. scattered all over and yeah, there's no interaction between those or there's no um, correlation between those. Now, what you can do when we add more buys there is you're just adding another axis to that graph. So if we called it a genotype by, by environment, by microbiome, now we have a three-dimensional chart where we could put all our data points on and try to draw a line through it and make some sense of it. And you can pretty much do this making more axes over and over and over again, even though to our human minds we live in three-dimensional space, so three dimensions seems like the max. But in a mathematical space, you can have as many dimensions as you want. And this is really commonly used in science to try to draw very complex correlations because we can essentially have an infinite number of um, axes if we really want to. The challenge in this is representing that, especially when you have to make a paper which is printed <laughs> on two-dimensional paper. That makes these graphs very complicated. I have a lot of trouble interpreting them uh, commonly, but it's really where we can put all of what we know into one place and try to draw conclusions from it. So in this case, they're saying, let's try to draw conclusions by what are the genes the plants have? Where are they living? What are the environmental parameters? Um, that are driving those presence yeah. of genes. And this could be even more axes. We could have temperature, barometric pressure, longitude, things like that. All Moisture content. Yeah, all these things can be more axes. On Number of daylight. Plant. Oh my God, we can. Yeah. <laughs> and then the microbiome, think of how many different types of microbes we could have. And then by management interactions, that's what are farmers actually doing um, to to grow these crops, what are the actual um, boots on the ground kind of measures that are being taken. So really characterizing where all of these um, variables kind of come into confluence and how we can maximize the productivity and efficiency of all of these things. Um, this is really the way forward to how can we connect what we're learning here in the laboratory to what can we do in the literal field of the farms to, ah. <laughs> to um, really drive forth sustainable agriculture here. <clears throat> awesome. I feel like I want to go, you know, develop a model host microbiome system. <laughs> oh, wait, I am. No. <laughs> But not of the host, just of the soil in the Amazon jungle. Keyword trying. As you guys can see, there's yeah. so this many different <laughs> variables that really need to go into like understanding what's there, how it interacts, what factors affect these interactions, and then taking these in the form of agriculture and linking them back to like, well, what are the people doing? Right, it's awesome that we can understand what the plant and the soil's doing, but I think one struggle that a lot of scientists have and a lot of fields have is just like linking this back to like 
how can like everyday people use this? Absolutely. You know, like if we if if after all of this research um, and understanding and harnessing the plant microbiome, you know, we have to add a certain molecule at a certain distance from like the plant soil or whatever. Are farmers really gonna go and do that? Maybe I don't know. I don't actually don't know any farmers, but I doubt it, right? Like I don't think they're gonna go measure around each plant and sink it in there. They're gonna want something that can easily be sprayed or like a something that's economically beneficial for them. Yeah. So to wrap things up, we always like to give a little take-home message about what can you do. This is my favorite part of our show. Yeah. The take-home message. Nice. Yeah. So um, this week, having talked about the interaction between the microbiome and um, agriculturally relevant crop plants and stuff, what is the closest thing some people have to that at home would be their garden, right? That's where you grow. Either you're it's growing that season too. aesthetic or you're growing tomatoes to eat them later in the season. Yeah, so this was a perfect time for that. And one of the um, most important things a lot of people do for their gardens is have a compost pile and really what a compost pile is essentially is a microbial culture so I in my opinion if you're a gardener and you have your own compost pile you get to call yourself a microbiologist at least by hobby because you are essentially culturing a microbial hobbyist yeah exactly <laughs> you are giving them um, what they need to um, decompose that organic matter and then you go ahead and use um, either the microbes themselves or their uh, end products as um, fertilizer for your garden essentially like we just talked about with the nitrogen among many many other things um, so I was just looking on because I don't know anything about that I was just looking <laughs> on the better home and garden website um, and it had a list of things you should put in your compost pile if you don't already and things you definitely shouldn't and I just wanted to talk about what that means in terms of what's going on with the microbes and all that. So what people generally put in like um, food scraps from fruits and vegetables and um, uh, you can put newspaper if you- I was gonna say paper, finely, can yeah, that pipe, Paper products. Well, does the ink from the newspaper, that's probably not like too great. That. It's probably not great, but it's also not introducing um, microorganisms that would be detrimental to the overall community. Okay, it should be okay. pretty, not sterile, but pretty not, not having mm -hmm. something like one big thing, they a uh, few big things they mentioned not to put in are dairy and meat products and pet waste. So poop from your dog or cat. All those things will carry non-native um, microorganisms that are considered non-native to the soil and that could throw off the microbial community like we were just talking um, about this review paper that they were really sense. trying to figure out what is the core microbiome um, of these uh, the soil around these agriculturally relevant plants and so that makes sense that you wouldn't want to introduce the gut microbiome from your dog into your <laughs> soil for your garden that could throw off the whole thing the way they put it in this article was it's going to make it smell bad but that's really not that's not <laughs> compost piles already smell bad i think yeah <laughs> well but. so eggs are considered dairy and i heard you can add eggshells like eggshells egg are good for right tomato plants yes. i think i heard yeah yes i just read that too and so that is a great example of the kind of way um in 
de <laughs> developmental biology, things can be um, differentiated into different cell types and different being made of different compounds and molecules and stuff. And so in that case, once you've separated the eggshell from the egg white and yolk, you've really done the job of making sure that the eggshell is not really going to harbor too many microbes and it's not going to be um, something that can um, throw off the micro <laughs> microbiome in that sense. Um, so yeah, eggshells, totally cool. Um, don't put dog and cat waste in, again, because it can throw off the microbiome. Exactly. And I think eggshells are really good in are high in calcium and like those minerals that That's gotta be a that lot of sense. plants need. Exactly. Um, so thank you. I will say that I once bought a compost that like sat on your kitchen counter or whatever. Um, it didn't work out great. I felt like it just dried everything up and like I feel like with a compost pile you really need those bacteria working like yeah. alive and breaking things down and that's why I think if you're really going to it's probably more for like people who live in like urban areas rather than someone who lives in a city but if you can get a composter that allows you to spin yeah. that that to me seems like something that bacteria will really like and will give you a healthy compost for your plants to be healthy. Absolutely. I just Can just I draw that, that conclusion? Now, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just saying that now made me think of a really key um, uh, instrument that we use in the laboratory all the time, which is the shaking incubator. The shaking incubator. Yes. It's doing essentially what a shaking incubator does. So what that is is we've um, put a little bit of microbes into fresh media. Media is the food that they eat, and then we shake the shit out of them for hours. What that is doing is really distributing the nutrients evenly to all of the cells that are in that um, culture. So you can just see by your eye after two hours shaking versus two hours not shaking, the, the culture that's been shaken has had a lot more growth. And in the composter that is, uh, you can rotate with the, with the lever there, that's really uh, um, accomplishing the same thing. Yeah. Because evenly distributing everything to all the cells because bacteria are what one micrometer yeah so like it's not going to get very far and it's not going to have access to a lot of nutrients so if you spin it then you're like you rechange its environments you allow it to grow more you allow it to yeah. break down different things yeah so, so that makes me want to restate if you're a composter you are a microbiologist a micro hobbyist <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a degree in it. I'm maybe just slightly jaded. No, I am. Like <laughs> so I want to thank you all for joining us for episode 11. Um, as always, my name is Mike. I'm Kevin. And have a good rest of your drive to work or <laughs> however you, uh, however you listen. Podcasts. Whenever you listen. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs> <laughs>